Aloha and welcome back to another Maestro's Vibe. That's right, that's right, that's right. My name is Juan Jefe Espinal. I am honored to be back here for another week, another episode with our highly esteemed co-host here. My name is Juan Jefe again from Maestro's Vibe. I'm going to pass it on over because we are continuing this important community corner conversation about water. Ray, you want to go ahead and tell the people just a little bit about yourself? Aloha. My name is Ray, Rhiannon Renee Terere Chandler Iao. I'm the executive director of Vaivai Ola Ohana, formerly known as Vaivai Ola Waterkeepers Hawaiian Islands. Um, and I'm very excited to be here again with you, Juan, um, to continue our conversations about water with our very, very special guest today. You say special guest. And I think that it's extremely important for us to just pay respect. We are in his space. We shared a little bit, just a small snippet at the end of our last episode about who we are honored to bring on the microphone here today. Dr. Rick, welcome to our show. Thank you. And welcome to Kukui Opai. This is a ahupua'a in South Kona, and it's a piece of land that I purchased 20 years ago and have made it into a farm, and at the same time, a sacred place that honors Hawaiian tradition. And one of the things that I'm constantly reminded of, everything I do here matters to that ocean, which is just a mile away, and it's in my consciousness, in my vision, every day. What an important way to start off our conversation, to think about the ocean. Last week, we talked about storm drains. We talked about our effect and, 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 and really what we as humans do and don't do to change where we live. And taking a step back and thinking about it all with you, Dr. Rick, here in your home in this special place, I just want to say thank you for bringing the ocean to the forefront of our conversation. And maybe you can just share a little bit about what does it mean to you? Well, as a scientist, we can tear things apart down a little nitty-gritty and, and study minutiae to put everybody asleep. But I maintain a philosophical direction to the ocean that's, that is enriched by my host culture, which is Hawaiian. Uh, the Hawaiian traditions of the ocean are those that can show us the way. I had a Hawaiian elder many years ago said, we've decided it's time we need to teach you Westerners how to live on the land. And I got mm -hmm. chicken skin, you know, you little bumps, <laughs> because I was looking for that. And so the ocean is a sacred place to me. I learned to swim in the ocean. I was surfing by the time I was five years old on inflatable rafts. And the ocean is always someplace I would go, no matter where I was in the world, when I wanted to feel that peaceful energy. Even if the ocean was boiling, there, there was still an energy says, you're home. You're home. I like to think of the, the planet Earth as a living entity, like a living cell. And the oceans of the planet are its circulatory system. And the planet is only as healthy as its oceans. And we're going to talk about things here that apply to Hawaii Island. Mm -hmm. But at least we feel picked on Everything I say could be applied to any place on the eastern seaboard, the western seaboard, Bangladesh, the Philippines, Japan. The human impact on the lifeblood of the planet has been out of our consciousness. We dig holes in the ground and throw our waste in it. Done deal. Don't have to worry anymore. But that's not the way water works. It's not the way the planet works. It's the way the human mind works. 
And if we don't change our mind and rely upon some wisdom that says, the aina, the land, is the life force. Disrespect it at your peril. And that is the philosophical underpinnings that inspires me as a scientist to learn more about what we're doing, what the behavior of our societies is on the ocean. And then it's always, always so important to be able to say, here are a few things that you as an individual can do to make a difference. And if all of the billions of people on the planet did a few things collectively we could heal the oceans and it's so easy to be overwhelmed Mm -hmm. in fact i've been guilty of one fellow said anytime you speak rick it sounds like the sky is falling and that overwhelms people and when people are afraid the cognitive brain shuts down. Mm-hmm. That is a physiological fact. And so what I hope to be able to do today is to create some inspiration and some hope to shut down that little fear devil that sits in our brain. It's always there, but, but we can override it. And that, that is something that, that you're right. It, it does make people shut down and we've got listeners who are teachers we've got listeners who are kids we've got listeners who are community stakeholders that create big impact you know and 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 i think it's a very important thing to think about we're not here to try and overwhelm people maybe try and take a little bit at a time because it's easy to feel overwhelmed in my career with my training and my experience and a scientific vocabulary, I can overwhelm people in a heartbeat. And in so doing, I shoot myself in the mm-hmm. foot. And so I've learned that my message is only as good as how it's received. Mm-hmm. And I need to speak to the listener, which is what I hope we'll accomplish today. Yes. And I think that's um, one of the... One of the um, magical elements of this this collaboration here. Um, mm. it, it is really taking Dr. Rick's incredible knowledge, and, and I want to talk about more mm. of that. You know, it's really, uh, it's not just the story of Kona, um, but I really want to focus on Kona today because we're here today. Um, but Dr. Rick's knowledge, taking that and, um, and then marrying it sort of with this uh, community organization, this approach that we had talked about, fishable, swimmable, drinkable waters, um, how do we get to a result like that? How do we, you know, it's a dream, really. I mean, fishable, swimmable, drinkable water sounds very simple and straightforward, but it's shockingly not our reality in a lot of places around the world and, and a lot of locations in Hawaii. And so that's why it's what we aspire towards. And, and what Dr. Rick brings is, is a microbiology background. And I actually want to ask, Dr. Rick, how does microbiology fit into water quality? Why, why are you really that guy who can explain these things? My training as a microbiologist first got applied to food and water safety. That is the dr- safety of our drinking water microbiologically. And that's still in question in many parts of these United States and certainly the world. Um, and then I started asking the question, what is the influence of human land use activities, specifically agriculture was my experience? What are we doing to the quality of the waters that make up our community? Uh, in my Northern California community, we had a true estuary called Tomales Bay. It's eight miles long and about two miles wide. And it drains on one side from the National Park, Point Reyes National Seashore, it drains on the other side from a lot of private land that is all in some form of animal agriculture. And the impacts on the bay were significant. But the impacts on Tomales Bay began when they cut down all the trees, redwood trees, mind you, Oof. 
to build San Francisco and a deep ocean estuary filled with mud. Now that is a, over a hundred year legacy that a lot of people are being retaught by unfortunate experience. We know that denuding the land puts a lot of sediment in the surface water, which becomes drinking water, it drains to the sea, we put sediment in the sea. Our corals do not like sediment. They do not like being covered up in fine mud. These are living critters that need clear, clean water and just don't appreciate being covered up with mud. And so when we overgraze farmland or we bulldoze a big tract of land to put in a mini subdivision, uh, phenomenal quantities of mud can flow into the Kona Shores. In fact, several months ago, there was a storm that hit up Malka where they had done some recent grubbing and grading and the drainage ways at Hulualoa uh, were raging muddy rivers all the way out into the sea. That was preventable. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think we want to talk a little bit about that today, prevention. Um, but, but before we get to prevention, um, we want to diagnose the problem a little bit better with mm-hmm. you. Um, well, what... I, I didn't fully answer your question. Oh, okay. How did a microbiologist get into mm. this? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And... Bacteria and virus survive in water for a short time or a long time, depending upon which species you're talking about. Human-derived microbes, most of which don't persist in water very long. And it became apparent to me that if I don't learn about water quality chemistry, to learn about the roles of nitrogen and phosphorus and iron, in a stream, in an estuary, in an ocean, I'm missing a big part of the story. And what the story has come to tell us is that when we overnourish waters like our coast, which are naturally nutrient poor, tropical waters are oligotrophic, meaning they have few nutrients. And it is that reason that you can go into tropical waters in many places in the world, and you can see 100 feet, 200 feet in the water. Crystal clear. Uh, when I first started scuba diving and, and snorkeling here, uh, it was common to get 90 feet of visibility in Honanau Bay. Today you're lucky to get 35 or 50 because the water is becoming murky. It's becoming murky with phytoplankton and algaes that are responding to the nutrition that that typically isn't present, okay? Then Mm. these organisms floating in the surface of the water act as sunscreen for the bacteria and viruses that may be introduced into the water, such that ultraviolet light is no longer able to penetrate deep enough and inactivate those microbes. In clear water, six to eight hours of bright sunlight will reduce the bacteria counts by a factor of 10,000 in clear water. And as the water gets murkier and murkier and murkier, um, that same effect may take several days. Wow. And if a microbe or a group of microbes has washed off of somebody out of their nose and throat... Mm -hmm or there's been a leaky uh, cesspit, Mm -hmm. um, the sun has been our saving grace. And now with murky water, because of overnutrition and phytoplankton blooms, the sun is no longer able to do what it did and has done for eons of time. Now, does it ever make you wonder how... Is it that something as wide and massive as the ocean is dependent on something as small as microbiology? I mean, we're talking like little teeny tiny things that are affecting the entire planet. The ocean has its own microbiome. Like our gut. Just like our gut, like our nose and our skin. And the ocean's microbiome is really important 
for the nutrient cycling that goes on in the oceans. And so they're playing a role in the microchemical ecology of the open ocean and the nearshore waters. The nearshore waters are particularly unique because that's where sunlight penetrates deep enough to support desirable plant life and desirable fishes and, and create their nursery habitat for the fishes that use the reef as their nursery that later go on to become open water pelagic fish that, that are feeding the planet. And the sustainability of fisheries is in great question. But the extent to which we degrade the nearshore reef nursery uh, threatens that even more. You know, would we intentionally put pollution in our child's nursery room? No. Mm. And this isn't intentional. This, this is out of sight, out of mind. I can't see it, therefore it doesn't exist. Powerful visual when you put it metaphorically that way, like poison in your child's bedroom. Well, and I think that's one of the, you know, the gifts that Dr. Rick has is to break things down on levels that people don't normally think about them. You know, microbiology, just like you pointed out, is um, is is sort of a, a whole world, you know, and um, and, a, and a way of viewing that, the world. And so Dr. Rick has been so... Uh, instrumental in helping honestly you know a different government agencies to see this problem you know differently and um, and community members to appreciate their role in it and I kind of want to take a step back and just talk about water in a very broad sense um, and so you know we, we got to do a deep dive with Darian last week into the um, into the stormwater aspects and 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 that plays a large role in what Dr. Rick is talking about right now, about things washing into the ocean and, and that nutrient um, buildup causing algal blooms and kind of throwing off the chemistry of the water. Um, but even before it rushes down the hill as stormwater or wastewater, um, it has to come out of the ground um, first. And so do you want to talk, Dr. Rick, a little bit about how water is utilized in Kona in particular and, and maybe the, the impact... Um, of of the way we utilize water, sort of um, in the long term, when we look at climate change as mm. um, as a, as a big factor here. That's several hours discussion. Yes, <laughs> but let me let me put our island water into perspective. The water under the land that the Department of Water Supply pumps, so we have fresh water when we turn on the tap. Uh, first point is most people aren't connected to the fact that they're drinking groundwater that was pumped. Um, it is often called an aquifer. I have trouble with that because in the mainland of the United States, there are aquifers that exist under several states. And the aquifer flows through gravel very slowly from a wetter place up north where glaciers have been thawing mm -hmm. and then moving through the land. Uh, the Ogallala Aquifer is under most of Colorado, and it is a body of water that gets its origins not in Colorado. Our groundwater is not really an aquifer because our groundwater falls on the mountains from rain, also, a significant amount of moisture is dew drippings. The Hawaiians have a name for that special rain that drips off of the foggy leaves. I wish I knew it. Uh, but I, I, I attended a, a talk by the Park Service years ago, and they were talking about rainwater and dew water being both essential components of our water resource. So rain and dew. To get dew to collect, you need leaves, which means you need trees. And cutting down trees and opening up land reduces that, that, that dew drop. That water then percolates down through the lava. There may be six inches of what we might call soil in a forest. 
up Malka. And mm-hmm. under, under that, it's fractured lava. And what we lovingly know here is blue rock. And up there, a lot of that blue rock has been stood up vertically by the lift of the volcanic vent. And the water moves down through those vertical cracks and can get trapped. And it's called high water. But most of our water is working its way all the way down, say from 1,500 feet where a lot of our wells are, to sea level. Seawater permeates through the island in the cracks and crevices and lava tubes. Some lava tubes are too small for my little finger, but big enough for my, my car. Wow. And that seawater resides there, and fresh water floats on seawater. And so for every 40 feet of fresh water floating on seawater, you'll get one foot of what's called freeboard, or water above sea level. That's available to put a pump in and pump. Now, fortunately, a lot of these freshwater lenses, as they're called, uh, are, are many hundreds of feet thick. And so you can put a well down into that lens, and you can pump fresh water that's floating on seawater. The two don't mix well at all. Wow. Now, if you start to overdraft and you get the lens small, you're going you're gonna to get some mixing. Okay? And so overdraft, mm. we hope we know how not to overdraft. Mm. We, we, we hope we know what true sustainable yield is. But... Freshwater delivery is limited by the number of wells we have. And right now, it looks like we barely have enough wells. And so some wells, particularly the one in the Cajo region, have to pump a lot. And as you pump a lot, you tend to upcone the seawater towards the intake of your pump, which causes a little bit of salt water to mix with the fresh water. Now that's something that's specifically related to people here on this island. And is it all, every island here in Hawaii, that is where, or more or less, where water is floating, fresh water is floating above the seawater? It's probably true in most of the leeward parts of all the islands. The windward side had rain for millions and millions of years, mm. built up thick soil, and a lot of rain runs off in the surface. But the Hilo site is richly endowed with groundwater as well. And is that related to, so our, I mean, we are talking about Hawaii Island, our water here. Now, I would assume that, like you said, we really have to consider the carrying capacity of that water yes. and its availability for the different uses yes. that we have? So there is several assumptions in sustainability is that the rainfall is going to remain fairly constant. The data says in the last 50 years, rainfall on Hawaii Island has, been, has dropped 14%. And rainfall distribution on this island, as everybody knows, there's no such thing as an average. There's places that get a whole lot too much rain, and there's places <laughs> like North Kona, yeah. Kohala. Yeah. It hardly rains at all. Mm-hmm. And so you make some assumptions that there's going to be an adequate rain to provide fresh water for sustainable yield. Sustainable yield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the Water Commission has the responsibility of the management of that water. And they also have, and Ray, Ray I want to comment on this, they also have the public trust doctrine that they must abide by, which means they manage that resource, which belongs to the people of Hawaii, for the people of Hawaii. Yes. That's right. Um, and, and as Dr. Rick is saying, you know, the public trust is, a, is really a, a sacred duty that the 
the state has under the Constitution um, to ensure the health um, of those water um, resources, and, and that duty flows also to the county. So the county has a responsibility to maintain um, public trust resources, including water, uh, for the benefit of the people. The, the commission has a duty um, to, to maintain that water and also to uh, maintain the maximum reasonable beneficial use of the water. And that's where it comes into conflict because they have a duty to maximize the reasonable and beneficial uses, but that can come into um, mm. conflict with conservation and, um, and the public trust. And, for example, you might have somebody who wants to have a well and, um, and, and the public trust dictates that, you know, you have to really look at what are all the impacts of somebody taking that well and, and sinking it in this area. Is there adequate, sustainable yield in this area to have the well there? Is it going to impact other well users? Um, and, and secondly, um, because water is so dynamic and in this hydrologic um, cycle, when you take water from one area, you are interrupting the flow of water in another. And so mm. when you extract groundwater, that lessens the amount of groundwater that is then flowing out into the ocean. And so um, what we've seen in places where in on a much smaller level, like for example, on the island of Molokai, the um, the introduction of a new well can have dramatic impacts on the nearshore waters because if you're pumping too much groundwater, then you're essentially reducing what Dr. Rick was explaining, that lens of water that's essentially um, you know, always flowing out into the, into the ocean. Those um, subterranean groundwater discharge areas are really, really important sources of fresh water entering the ocean and creating life. And so it's not just where the river meets the ocean that's important, called the muliwai in Hawaii. In Hawaii. Um, that that's where the life is um, is 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 very um, abundant because you know there's seaweed and then baby fishes and big fishes and um, but those things happen also in um, subterranean groundwater discharge areas, which are frequent along the Kona coast. And um, so if you are pumping too much and you're reducing the water that's then flowing out into the ocean, you could be compromising fisheries. And so now that is having an impact on, on people's maybe um, traditional gathering practices or um, in, in other um, cultural practices that are dependent on that relationship between groundwater flowing into the ocean and, um, and the, the fisheries. And so what Dr. Rick is saying is really important in that um, you know, we have, we have these resources, but they're so dynamic. And it's important that the people who are managing them understand, um, and frequently they don't, you know. And, and it's not because they're trying to make poor choices. It's because the hydrology and, and the geology of our islands are so complex. And so Dr. Brick's point about sustainable yield is, is, is really important because these calculations of how much water we should be extracting through our wells were based on a formula from a time in the past when we had more rain. And so when Dr. Rick is saying rainfall is declining, if, pump, if pumping is not declining alongside rainfall, then we have a sustainability issue. Because that pumping, if I'm extrapolating correctly, is related to another variable, which maybe you're, we didn't consider, which is population growth. That's on right. On these islands. I mean, I, I, it really seems like there's more people. And per capita water use is fundamentally out of control. Half of what we use in our home is on our lawn. Why do we have lawns? <laughs> in Kona, yeah. Why do we have grass like and palm trees and things, you know? You drive through Phoenix today, you will not see a lawn because lawns are illegal. Mm. Incredible waste of water. And... I am advocating that Hawaii now begin thinking about how best to conserve this resource. I was downtown Kailua Kona not too long ago at the new Safeway Shopping Center, and I was observing the sprinkler system beautifully irrigating the sidewalk and the street, <laughs> creating a stormwater event. <laughs> washing oils and greases into the storm drain. Oh, my. And 
we've, we've heard about that. But I'd like, to, I'd like to go back and talk about something that is very unique to Kona. Okay. And I was on a conference call with many statewide folks, and I had to make this point to them. Otherwise, they think that Kona may be like um, Honolulu, where they have a lot of soil, and, and soil erosion is a problem. Uh, the Kona Plain, which starts south of me about eight miles and goes all the way to Kavaihai and maybe even up the Kohala Coast, is all sitting on top of a subterranean estuary. So imagine this. I have this huge butter knife, and it's very hot, and I can slice the ground from down here at Opihihali, all the way up to Kavaihai, and just lay it back. And I've sliced down maybe uh, 50 feet. What we would see as we looked down, we would see queen baths all over the place. We would see lava tubes with standing and flowing water in them. And that water in that subterranean estuary rises and falls four times a day with the tides. Wow. So of course. As, <laughs> of course as the tide goes up, and we can get tides that are two, a yeah. huge tide in Hawaii is three feet, mm-hmm. unlike Alaska that has 30-foot tides. Um, but three feet of seawater is going to win. And so it pushes back under the ground, taking salt water in there, and there is some mixing that's going on with the groundwater such that at low tide, what's coming out of the little holes in the rocks and the pukas that are deeper is cold, brackish groundwater that's a mixture of this groundwater and seawater. And one of the things I think a lot of us have experienced when they're in the ocean is, whew, I just swam into a cold place. And it's not very big. I swam 10 feet and I'm out of it. You have swum into a submarine groundwater discharge. And many of these discharges flow tens to hundreds of millions of gallons of brackish groundwater seawater into the ocean every day. Consider this. This this land that is above me gets 60 to 100 inches of rain a year. And all along the South Kona Coast and the North Kona Coast, there's not a single stream that can be seen. Yeah, there's a flood channel in Hulaloa, but it's, it's not really a stream. You're right. And so where does all that rainwater go? Percolates down through the rocks, floats on the seawater as it slowly migrates to the shore. Subterranean estuary. For, for people who have been in Kauai, there's a beautiful estuary there that's well studied called the Hanalei River. You know, it drains, oh, yeah. it drains the Malkatara lands and then it comes across under the bridge that's falling apart <laughs> and out along the river and then into the ocean and it's subject to the tides in the ocean. And that water can be nutrient rich, it can be full of mud and sometimes it looks like it may also contain some human fecal bacteria and is under special management because of that. That is a surface estuary. It is unlawful to back up your dump truck or your cesspit into the estuary. It's just blatantly unlawful. It's a criminal violation of the Clean Water Act. And yet, we build homes, we mm. dig cesspits, we put in septic systems, we put in these things called dry wells, which handle stormwater, which just send it down 10 feet in the rock and then bye-bye. And we are dumping that water into the subterranean estuary. Today, if you went along the coast and you took your thermometer and you found some cold water, there's a 99.99% likelihood that that water will be rich in nitrogen and rich in phosphorus. 
Now, where do those nutrients come from? Us. Us. We eat protein that contains 6% nitrogen. We eat a lot of food that contains a lot of phosphorus. And it gets excreted a little bit every day in our urine. And where do we put the urine? In a cesspit that drains into the subterranean estuary, which empties into the near, sh near shore coast, which is supposed to be a vital living ecosystem. And yet we inadvertently over-fertilize it. This was all driven by a public health mantra that says that all human waste contains cholera, typhoid, hepatitis. The, the, the list the EPA has on the website is, is a mile long. And people assume that that's true for all waste all the time. And so this horrible, horrible stuff needs to be out of touch with us. And so putting it in a hole, covering it with a concrete lid, it's out of touch in the immediate moment. But it's going to flow to the sea. A lot of it's going to die along the way. And if the water's clear, it's going to die when it hits the sun. But just to put waste underground with the belief that we're really protecting public health is very short-sighted. Because one of the things that's in human waste from time to time are some viruses, like the cruise ship virus, known as a Norwalk virus, make you very sick for three or four days, ruin your vacation. Uh, but people shed trillions, trillions of viruses in wow. their waste. And it only takes one or two to make you sick. Fortunately, the ocean, when it's clear, the, the ultraviolet light disinfects the ocean well. Uh, we just don't see scores of people getting ill from swimming in our ocean. And that's because the water's still relatively clear for now. And that's the work that you're, it's, you're putting those, you're starting to put those pieces together for all of us because for all of us, I feel like we, myself as an individual who, who, can confidently go on the microphone and say, I enjoy the ocean. What I would know and feel and, and, and be able to take away is that, that cold spot that you say, you know, I'm swimming in the ocean and, I, and that's all I feel. But there's so much that goes into that little moment. There's so much that is connected there all the way back to our homes and all the way back to the way we choose to live our lives. That's a deep connection. Yeah. And I didn't make the bacteria nutrient connection until living here. Because where I'm from, the water's just always brown. It probably wasn't mm. that way before we logged the entire California coast. And we used the coastline to dump sewage water. San Francisco dumped raw sewage into San Francisco Bay up until about 20 years ago. That sounds to me exactly like what you were mentioning, that baby, the, you're putting poison in your baby's room. That is just such an image, like to poison your own bay that way. And, and we do it even today in, in inadvertent ways. It costs San Francisco $2 billion to build a sewer collection system along Fisherman's Wharf and then pump that sewage over the hill to the Pacific coast side, treat it to a high level, and then pump it out to sea seven miles. And after L.A. did something similar with another 2.2, EPA ran out of money. And today, Hawaii County and almost every county in the United States does not have enough money to deal with its sewer water. It's really scary. And, and, and going back to what you said earlier, one, it's like, you know, these are really compounded holistic issues when dr rick was talking about um pumping uh and and that the rate of pumping really kind of has to follow the rainfall you know and and you said oh but how does that impact you know development and people moving here and living here and, and the truth is um you know these things are all interrelated and so if you have 
um, a landscape such as Kona, where it's very dry, and in you know climate change, it's projected to become more dry in the drier areas. Then we're headed into less rainfall for sure, um, and we yet um, I think I read something recently that there's more development projected for Kona than for the whole rest of the state of Hawaii put together. So if you add up all the development in the whole state of Hawaii, that's how much development is coming for Kona in the next like 20 years. And so you can imagine that the rate of pumpage is going way up, right, as rainfall is going down. And, um, and that in addition to that, all of these homes are going to have waste generated by them. And they're going to need to dispose of that waste. And right now, thank goodness, you know, people cannot build more cesspools um, because we recently have, you know, passed a law that you cannot um, build more cesspools. But sadly, the, the alternatives, you know, that are being proposed and certainly the septic tank as an alternative is not a good alternative. And I, and I think that, you know, looking at um, so many of the issues Dr. Rick just brought up, um, trying to go back in time and fix a wastewater issue after it's already a big mess is just completely expensive um, and, and sometimes impossible um, given the economy, right? And so, Dr. Rick, do you want to share a little bit about um, economic approaches to the cesspool conversion that you think would make it doable? Yeah, but let, let, let me just step back from that. Sure. We need to carefully examine how we use water, what quality of water mm. is best for a particular intended use? For example, why do we use drinking water to flush the toilet? I think in 20 years, that statement will be such a funny statement. Well, there are communities that are recycling water, even at the household level. Certainly, there are buildings in San Francisco that treat the waste from that office building, and they reuse the reclaimed water to flush the toilets. They, they use water for, for, for maintenance and cleaning. And there's even buildings that have reclaimed the water to such an extent that it's drinkable. Now, that crosses the bridge too far for a lot of people. <laughs> but the city and county of San Diego is processing sewage waste, generating drinking water quality water, but rather than put it into your pipe to your house, they're putting it in the ground from which they pump to bring it to your house. So it's a little sleight of hand. But perception is something we have to deal with. And, 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 I, and I fear that I've done what I've done so many times in the past is, is be so direct and forceful with my understanding of the way the world works that people just kind of go, oh, my God, you know, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. And I want to say it's not. There is great, great opportunity. A homeowner in Kona today has the legal authority to capture their gray water if they can. If your house is on slab, it's a little hard. But if your house is on stilts and you have access to the plumbing under the house, you can divert your gray water, specifically sinks, mm. showers, and laundry. Kitchen sink water is a little too rich. It's got just too much stuff in it. So that should go with what we call the black water, which is the toilet. Mm. And so the waste system of the future will be designed to only handle the black water, mm. kitchens and toilets will have super low flush toilets, so the volume of water mm. will be less. Today, you can buy a toilet that will separate urine from feces. Wow. It's got a little separate compartment in the front. And if you aim okay, you can hit it. And then that nutrient-rich urine is captured and treated separately. And by not commingling the urine water with the fecal... It's far, far easier to treat. And at, and at the community level, that nutrients in urine wastewater can be captured and you can produce 
pelletized fertilizer for farms and fields. We buy fertilizer. It comes in on a ship. And fertilizer requires a lot of natural gas to manufacture. And gas for fertilizer synthesis, what I read this recently, comes from Russia. And so being able to produce our own fertilizer on the island is really, really important because it helps close the nutrient cycle. We keep bringing in nitrogen and fertilizer and protein. And if we, can, if we can recycle those nutrients, then we can stop being a nutrient sink. And our oceans are the ultimate nutrient sink. And so we have simple technology for taking a traditional leach field after a septic tank, bedding it on 18 inches of sand and sawdust, another 18 inches of sand, and let the wastewater from the septic tank percolate through, and it will remove 90% of the nitrogen, 90% of the phosphorus, and a 10,000-fold reduction in bacteria. And the only thing different is sand and sawdust. In fact, we don't even need sawdust. We can use our mulch from the, the county dump because it's, it's been decomposing a little bit, which makes the carbon more available to the microbes that do all this work. The nitrogen in that system gets converted from salt, nitrate, to a gas, nitrogen gas. It goes back into the atmosphere. 80% of what we're breathing right now is nitrogen gas. It's inert. It is not a greenhouse gas. And when it's in the air, it's not a problem. When it's in the water, it's a problem. Mm. And we have the technology to get it out. This technology has been adopted by the legislatures of Maine, Massachusetts, New York, and Florida. Oh, the East Coast yeah. of the United States of America. Because they have inland waterways. And you can go to Florida today. You can go to Long Island today. And those waterways are brown, green, <laughs> and red and full of dead fish. They sure are. The only reason we don't have that here... And they smell like farts. ...is <laughs> because we basically live on the open ocean. But we're seeing evidence of this pollution in Honokaha Harbor. We're seeing it in Kailua Bay. We're seeing it in Kahalua Bay to a lesser extent, and very prevalent in Keauho Bay. That's a very protected inlet. And this work is being done. I, I mean, it really, it, it, I, I, I usually think that it's darkest before it does become light, you know. And I think that acknowledging these issues is such an important step in the right direction. And I think being able to take time to respect the work that's being done, some of the important ideas that are being published I think it's really important for our listeners and for anybody who's out there and learning about this topic and maybe feeling a little bit like they are inclined to learn a bit more. So, Dr. Rick, if it was okay with you, I want to just introduce a little bit of our literature circle. Jump into just uh, some different ideas, some different publications that, that you'd like to bring to the table to, to help bring a little more light to this nuanced conversation. I'd be happy to. Um, I have had a, a water blog uh, for several years, and I must have maybe 30 or 40 postings in, in, that, in that blog, and it's called H2O, Healthy Hawaiian Oceans. And it's written in such a way is that most people will be able to hear and understand the message. I also have several YouTube videos that I produce that are on my, my channel, I guess, if you will. And I'll provide you with the URL to those. Mm -hmm. And some of these wastewater treatment issues, this, the cesspool dilemma that we are swimming in, uh, is, also, is also discussed. Literally. Yeah, but I'm... Every time I talk about water issues, I have to talk about 
the solutions are at hand. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. The Queen Lilio Kalani Trust that has its headquarters there uh, behind Makala Boulevard in Kona. Mm -hmm. They own hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres in trust. The long-term plan is to turn that entire section of land that runs from Kukini Highway in the south to above um, Macy's, turn it into residential housing tracks. We're talking about thousands of homes. So demand for water, a demand for wastewater disposal, and an opportunity to design the community with that in mind. Mm. The documents that I have read so far by the various planners that are working for the trust haven't even mentioned it because they can't imagine it. This is not their modus operandi. And so it's up to us to say, hey, Queen's Trust, how about if we do it a little differently? How about if we design the community so it really conserves water? You don't need 100 gallons per person per day. You can reuse the water through gray water reuse, or you can build community wastewater treatment facilities mm -hmm. that look like an electrical box, and most of it's underground. And that treatment plant called a membrane bioreactor can deliver near potable drinking water, quality water, back to the homes for toilet flushing, for landscape irrigation, car washing, what have you. But the county government has no policy for that. Mm. Yet. Yet. The departments, there may be individuals in the planning department, and I've met a couple of them who, who are thinking this, but it has yet to get translated into policy. And until it's, until it's policy coming out of our county council, it isn't going to happen. And I would really hope and pray that my friend Mitch Roth mm -hmm. would take sustainability really seriously and say, okay, folks, this is what we're going to do by 2020, 2030, 2050. Come up with a plan and tell us how we got there. Kind of like what John Kennedy did to NASA. Mm -hmm. We've put a man on the moon. How did we do that? Planning the future from the future. And you're giving us a tangible moment right now. I mean, it's, I mean, we, housing is a necessity. It is hard out here for people to find housing. But along with that necessity comes these other necessities that if you think about in the correct way and you do this research and you learn alongside these blogs and you learn alongside scientists and you plan accordingly, you can make a better decision for our future that will help mitigate those costs that may never actually get our life back to where we had it. Well, the knee-jerk reaction is we can't afford that. And my question is, well, have you put a pencil to it yet? No, it's just my knee-jerk reaction. They don't say that, but they're thinking it. So if you can cut home water use by 75%, what does that do to the affordability of living there? And our water bills are only going to keep going up. Energy and water availability. And the cost of operating a, a huge water delivery system. It just makes me truly reflect on the importance of this conversation. I mean, it, it seems to me like this is just the beginning stages of such important work that you have set the foundations for. And, 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 and like you were saying, Ray, is continuing to inspire yourself, inspire more students, inspire more people. And with that being said, I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Thinking about what we've been sharing here, thinking about everything we've been through, is there anything that you're taking away from this conversation that you'd like to share with us? Yes. 
I do these kinds of conversations, and I really appreciate you coming to my home and setting up all your equipment because this is not something I can accomplish by myself. I'd like to think of you all as water missionaries and that it's my job to empower you to go forward and carry the message and inspire others to do the same. Because the future is ours if we own it. And if we don't own it, we abdicate to somebody else who will make the decision for us. And my experience now 50-some-odd years in, in academia uh, is that if, if we don't speak up, others will, and they will always determine the future from the past because that's what's comfortable. Absolutely. Um, and Dr. Brick, thank you so much for your work. I mean, honestly, I don't know um, where we would be right now as a as mm. a community talking about sustainability um, and the the science that you have. I really encourage people to follow these links. Go to um, Dr. Rick's blog and read some of the work that he has done because it is so illuminating about our issues. And it's not about um, being uh, overwhelmed or you know that that. Um, that you know these are these are too big to tackle in fact it's it's really just thinking about it as the tools um that we need to do the job you know which is we can't wait any longer i mean uh, um we talked last episode about legacy you mm-hmm. know we've got legacy issues and and really um the the way that i'm thinking about legacy looking at dr rick and 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 this conversation is the legacy that we will leave, you know, um, I think the difference um, between the past and now is that we have new information. You know, I think a lot of the choices that were made that got us to the situation that we're in here in Hawaii were not made um, maliciously. You know, they were made in an absence of information. Um, but we've now come too far to make the same mistakes as Dr. Rick said, you know, and so we need to take what we know and make better choices. And I think that Earth Me- Earth Week and Earth Month and mm-hmm. Earth Day, um, they all give us you know, the opportunity to reflect on the ways that we um, impact our environment. You know? And you don't have to be Dr. Yeah. Rick. You know, Dr. Rick does so much uh, for the planet. I think that um, it'd be hard to aspire towards being exactly like Dr. Rick, but if you could do just one thing differently, um, if you could be... Um, you know, doing something in your yard differently. If you could be an early adopter of reusing your gray, gray water, think mm-hmm. about what an impact that would make on a collective scale. Um, what would it be, like Dr. Rick mentioned, to do xeriscaping where um, you're using native plants that don't require so much uh, water and that we're not spending 75% of our water usage on our lawns um, and instead we're saving all of that water for the future, um, for future generations. And so... It's really inspiring to just think about any of the things that Dr. Rick talked about and, um, and the ways that we might be able to implement them as a community, um, as individuals, and how all of this might resonate with the decision makers who um, ultimately need to make some policy changes that will help us get there, I think, a little bit sooner. So um, I'm just so grateful for this time today and, and for you also, Juan, for um, giving us this opportunity to talk story about water. It, we managed again to talk about fishable, <laughs> swimmable, drinkable water um, in just all of the things that we have shared. And, and yeah. really, it's an honor to do this work. Thank you. Absolutely. This is a privileged place I feel I sit in. And it, it's something that um, I, I, to all our listeners and our viewers who maybe took all this information or anybody and you feel and you feel like, well, maybe everything will work out or maybe everything might go terribly, you know? When I think about all of that and I, I wrestle with my own anxieties, something that's been taught to me that helps me wrestle through is really imagining, you know, what if it all works out? And what if we do start planning societies and communities that are mindful, you know? And it really helps me to think that there is this possibility, there is this imagination and this hope towards a better future and I, I, I think that it starts right here. And I am just so grateful for this opportunity, this time, this space. 
And to anyone who's been tuning in, to our viewers, please continue to check us out. We've got another opportunity this upcoming week where we're going to be sharing even more opportunities for you to make a difference. We encourage you highly to go ahead and follow Dr. Rick's blog, Dr. Rick's YouTube page, because it's got an infinite wealth of information that is so important for us to take in right now. If you like these sorts of conversations, go ahead and follow us on YouTube at Maestro's Vibe. And if you really appreciate what we do, go ahead and check that Patreon link in the description. Everything we've talked about here is going to be in the description. I just am so grateful and want to give everyone a big mahalo as we say, Ahoy ho. Mahalo. Aloha.